0: Do you remember the first time that you maybe got caught up in in the wonder of the stars? I think for many of us it happens in different places and different times. And I think for some of us it might have been watching that famous speech live or or in history books or on the newscast of John F. Kennedy saying, you know, we're going to the moon in 10 years, not because it is easy, but because it is hard. That's my terrible John F. Kennedy impersonation. And I think that might be one. And then there was that moment where Neil Armstrong actually walked on the moon. One small step. Wow, human beings walking on the moon. For other times, our kind of obsession with the stars came with tragedy. Like, we couldn't imagine when I was in elementary school, and we were sitting on bleachers with one rolled-out TV in the gymnasium for all of us on the bleachers to watch, and we watched the the blast-off of the Challenger, and then watched it tragically disintegrate midair, and it was horrifying, it was disillusioning, and it was like, oh my goodness, I guess we don't always win and conquer the stars. There's forces at bay that are bigger than us. And then recently, you know, even during COVID, there was the blast off of Bezos. He's been talking about making it so all of us can experience weightlessness one day. And he went up in space and shot up there and was weightless for a moment, came back down. And as he came back down, there were a lot of jokes and a lot of memes and a lot of like Austin Powers references to to what went on there. But it was this moment that we kind of had made it. And then if you watch the Amazon special, Captain Kirk, William Shatner, got in that. He was the oldest man in space. It was amazing if you haven't seen it. William Shatner, stardate, 3.26542, went into weightlessness and he came back. He said, you know, I've played this character my whole life. There is nothing like being on the edge of outer space and experiencing weightlessness and feeling that. something. You feel something in there. And then, of course, recently with... with, with With Elon Musk and his ability with with SpaceX to shoot stuff up more and more efficiently for for satellites and things like that. And his hopes of going to Mars. A couple years ago, uh, my wife and Quinn and I were down in Daytona Beach. Just so happened to walk out there in the evening. Where there just so happened to be a SpaceX launch 90 miles from us. But from the beach, we looked down the beach and we could see this ball of fire going up, up, up into the sky. And there's like an optical illusion because it's shooting straight up, but just because the optical illusion of the light, it looked like a drone flying toward us about 100 feet away, 50 feet off the beach. just scrolling toward you and then all of a sudden you'd see that it actually went behind a cloud and it's actually way up there. It was an incredible optical illusion. My son, Quinn, as many of you know, is 13 and, and uh, he uh, just loves life and he, he also has some disabilities like blindness and autism. And Even he's like mesmerized. <laughs> like he, he can't see a lot, but man, he's mesmerized looking up at the sky as we're talking about what's going on up there. Just this incredible fire in the sky. Captured by the stars. And today I want to share with you that I think the stars reveal a beauty that is big enough to blow your mind, but also close enough to fill your heart. When you look up at a night sky, it just, it just blows your mind how many stars and how big the universe is. Yet also it fills your heart with a sense of wonder, a sense of I'm part of a grander scheme of things. There's just something about the beauty of the stars that speaks to us on, on a soulish level. We've learned in this series that, that there's three ways we learn anything. How do you know what's true in the world? What kind of three R's we've talked about. One, you use reason. Is what you're studying, is what you're learning, is it reasonable? Does it, does it have contradiction in it? Or does it make conclusions that are reasonable when you put them together? We've also said if somebody makes a claim about anything, it should, it should respond to reality. There should be a reality to the claims. If you say something's true, it should actually show up in reality if it's true. But we've also talked about wonder, that you revel in wonder There are certain pieces of art, certain self-attesting truths that when you hear them, when you see them, you're like, yeah, that's true. Wow, that's beautiful. And something happens in you. You can't even fully articulate, but something soulish happens when you revel in wonder. And today, I want to show you how looking at the stars can do exactly that. It can say there's something to know. Maybe more than just something to know. There might be someone to know up in the stars. And we're going to look at whether or not there's something we need to tune into going on in the universe around us. But thirdly, that maybe the universe was designed to commune. The word commune means to share in common. That maybe there's something about the wonder of looking at the stars at night that's longing to connect us with something bigger and grander than ourselves. And we do that not through, through fiction, but through the facts that lead to these longings. So let's start with what it means to know. I I want to propose to you that if the universe had a beginning, then perhaps there was a beginner that we might want to begin to know. If the universe, as it's been spreading out across time and space, if it actually had a beginning, then perhaps it would be logical that things that have beginnings had a beginner. Something caused it. And if there is something or someone that caused it, maybe I should begin to know what that is. About 400, 500 B.C., there's a guy named Isaiah. He's writing in the Bible. And he describes what happens when he looks up at the sky. He says to us, "Hey, follow my example, guys. You might want to try this out. Lift up your eyes on high. Lift up. What's amazing is the Hebrew word for lift up your eyes is the word naseh. If you look at it carefully, what does it look like? NASA. <laughs> now, they're not related. But isn't it amazing that the Hebrew word for lifting up your eyes to the skies and stars is naseh? Nase your eyes. And it's not just to lift up. It's to lift up to capture something and to carry it with you. Lift up your eyes on high. And then it says, and see who has created these things. And the word see means to behold, to be awestruck, to to let it touch you and and go deep into you in a way that just a glancing, oh, that's pretty. Really behold it, get in touch with it. And by doing so, he says, who has created these things, who brings out the host by number. He calls them by name, by the greatness of his might and the strength of his power. Not one is missing. All those stars, there's a plan for that. He knows their name. That's what he's saying. But he's mostly telling us to look at the stars. Behold what's going on. See if there's something to take with you. Let's do that for a moment. We're so busy running around or looking at phones or watching TV. Let's take a moment and lift up our eyes and behold. What does the universe look like when we peer out into a telescope? Let me give you one picture. This is the starry wreath in the Pegasus galaxy. Look at the beauty. Look at the colors. Feel the wonder of that. It could just as easily be a priceless piece of art and it's just hanging there in the universe. And how about we always talk about the fact that we're living in the Milky Way galaxy, but what does a spiral galaxy look like? Here's a picture we took of a spiral galaxy spanning space. You think, we live in a galaxy like that. And within that galaxy, there's a sun, there's planets, trillions and trillions of particles just swirling together in a beautiful piece of artistry. You just lift up your eyes to that and you behold it. And you're like, wow, that's a big place. Or here's a gorgeous one. You ever looked into a nebula? This is a stellar duo in an Orion Nebula. You give me a hundred years, I couldn't paint that. So look at again, the colors, look at the artistry, look at the majesty. You take that in and you see that there's, there's not just stuff out there, there's an artist out there. There's color out there. There's wonder out there. And of course, many of these pictures we're able to see because of the Hubble Telescope. You hear people reference it all the time, the Hubble telescope, the Hubble telescope. But Hubble, who invented the telescope, did you know he grew up in a family of faith, in the Bible and Jesus? And as a scientist who loved astronomy, he didn't see science and and faith as any type of competitors. No, he continued to have a sense of awe and wonder as a scientist, as an astronomer his whole life. One of my favorite quotes is when Hubble said this in describing kind of how science and, and faith come together. Equipped with his five senses, man explores the universe around him and calls the adventure science. But there's no conflict between science and religion. Our knowledge of God is made larger with every discovery we make about the world. So I started this this point by saying that if the universe has a beginning, then perhaps there's a beginner that we might want to begin to know. So I guess, can I prove my case? Is the universe really expanding? And is there really scientific proof it had a beginning? A well, recent scholarship has shown exactly that. And again, sure, a pastor's going to say that. But let me let you hear from a scientist, an astronomer who's an agnostic, as he's wrestled with the evidence to whether or not the universe has a beginning. Let's watch.
1: During the 1920s, two of the most important discoveries in the history of science were made here, at the Mount Wilson Observatory overlooking Los Angeles. For eight years, astronomer Edwin Hubble photographed and studied the cosmos with the largest telescope in the world. In 1923, Hubble confirmed that mysterious formations called nebulae, widely believed to be enormous clouds of gas, stars, and dust within the Milky Way, were actually individual galaxies located far beyond our own. Five years later, he verified that these galaxies were moving away from each other at fantastic speeds. Our universe, long thought to be eternal, static, and relatively small, was growing larger by the second. The implications were staggering. If the universe is continually expanding, then at some point early in its history, it must have been smaller and more compact.
2: If you reverse the outward motions of the galaxies, and go backward in time. And they come closer and closer together. And you reach a point finally where they're nearly infinite in density and temperature. And farther than that, you can't go. So there is a beginning. There is a, t- a point in time from which it all started. And that's a remarkable thing because it has a very strong theological flavor to it. And that intrigued me because I am an agnostic. And if there was a beginning, a moment of creation in the universe, and there was a creator. And a creator is not not compatible with agnosticism. And just as I can't believe that there was a creator, I can't believe that this all happened by chance, which implies there was a creator. So you see, I'm, I'm in a completely uh, hopeless uh, bind and I've stayed there.
1: Robert Jastrow's uncertainty was fueled by multiple discoveries that pointed to a universe created out of nothing and governed by laws of physics and chemistry, finely calibrated to ensure complex life. Life is so
2: extraordinary, especially advanced life, intelligent life. Conscious beings are such an extraordinary phenomenon that again, I just qualitatively find it difficult to believe that they happened by chance. Think of your brain, for example. It's three pounds of matter, contains a million trillion synapses, as I recall circuits opening, and closing all the time. It's so much more complicated than the most advanced artificial intelligence. Again, I find it hard to believe that this is all a matter of atoms and molecules. And so I try to fit into my concept of the world the uh, conclusion that there is a larger force of some kind, which we can call God or you can call it whatever, but I can't accept that. I'm uh, what's called a materialist in philosophy. That doesn't mean I like Cadillacs and big cars. My students always used to think that. It means that I believe the world consists entirely of material substances. And when you specify those substances, the atoms and molecules, and the laws by which they interact, you've done it all. There isn't anything more to be said or inserted into your model of the universe. That's what my science tells me. I've been a scientist all my life, but I find it unsatisfactory. In fact, it makes me uneasy. I feel I'm missing something, but it will not, uh, I will not
1: find out what I'm missing within my lifetime. Robert Jastrow died in 2008. As the founder of NASA's Goddard Space Institute and the director of the Mount Wilson Observatory, he helped to popularize astronomy throughout the world. In his best-selling book, God and the Astronomers, Jastrow described the philosophical conflict between scientific materialism and evidence for a universe that had a beginning. Far from disproving the existence of God, astronomers may be finding more circumstantial evidence that God exists, that the universe began abruptly in an act of creation. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And as he pulls himself over the final rock, he is greeted by a band of theologians who have been sitting there for centuries.
0: I love how honest he was, he said, you know, I just got this conflict, the evidence seems to support that there is a universe that had a beginning, and therefore it would imply a beginner. But rather than trying to say, "And maybe I should begin to know him, he's like, yeah, I just, I, I'm not open to that. I would just encourage you to be open-minded to what the evidence shows. And he mentioned not only that, but he also began to see all the fine-tuning, and that's the second thing I want you to think about, is that if there is really precision fine-tuning in the universe, then perhaps there was a fine-tuner that we need to get in tune with. If there's that level of fine-tuning that he discovered, and we've been looking at through this entire series, we'll look even more about that today, if the universe had been fine-tuned for life, perhaps there's a fine-tuner that tuned it, like tuning a guitar or tuning a piano. It's precise work to tune something. And then you need to get, maybe you and I need to get in tune with it. Maybe if you talk to folks around here, we've discovered that getting in tune with that kind of truth, that kind of hope, that kind of power, it can actually do amazing things in your own heart. So what are some of those fine-tuning pieces? And you might be really into astronomy, you might not. If you're really into it, here's two books that may go deep into the science I've mentioned in this series. One is called The Case for the Creator by Lee Strobel. Very easy read as he investigates scientists about the fine-tuning of the world. Another book called The Privileged Planet, specifically about what makes Earth so fine-tuned for life in the universe. Let's go back to that writer from the bible writing about 400 500 bc named isaiah now what did he say here he said it's not just look at the stars and go wow that's pretty he says lift up your eyes right nasa nase behold and don't just look at the stars see who has created these things who has fine-tuned these things who has put this together and look what he says when he created the stars he numbers them he can count them that's a big number And he knows them by name. It reveals his strength, it reveals his power. There's something to know, there's something to get in tune with. Well, if God names all the stars and he knows all the the numbers of the stars, you ever thought about how many stars there are? Quick trivia here, so whether you're watching at home, you can do this kind of on your own or whether you're in the room, you can kind of shout it out. What do you think? According to astronomers, how many stars are just in the Milky Way galaxy? 4 billion, 10 billion, 100 billion, or 16 trillion. Just the Milky Way galaxy. How many do you think? See, we got 100 billion. I hear 100. Do I have two? Two, 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 four, four, four billion, 10 billion. Who we got? Anybody else? C D E A Q. Okay, we got A. What is the answer? The answer is C, 100 billion. Way to go. 100 billion is our estimate of stars in the Milky Way galaxy. So then the question, if there's 100 billion, how many galaxies are there? So we're going to multiply 100 billion times. According to astronomers, how many galaxies do we think they are? 100 to 200 million? 10 million? 750,000? Or 100 to 200 billion with a B? Any guesses? D. The confident groups over here. (laughs) You are correct. It is D. 100 to 200 billion. That's quite a variation. 100 to 200 billion. That's kind of like how the government does their their budgeting. There, somewhere between 100 and 200 billion. So 100 to 200 billion times 100 uh, uh, billion of uh, of stars. I mean, this is a massive numbers that God would know by name and He could count. All right. Here's another question. According to agnostic biologist, Ward and Brownlee. So these are not Christians who are kind of bringing Christian thoughts to you. These are agnostics. They identified how many fine-tuned characteristics that exist on Earth to make life possible. Now, each one of these characteristics is so improbable that it's like 1 to 10 to the the 30th power, 120th power, just these astronomical numbers. But how many of those astronomical precision things had to happen in the universe for Earth to support life? Was there 9 of them? 16 of them? 268 of them, or 12,004? B? C? D? Yeah, it's kind of like when you take a test you don't know, you're like, you know, what sounds general, what sounds specific? So 12,004 either sounds specific or a really good lie. It turns out it's, it's true. So they identified 12,004 precision, fine-tuned, astronomical amount of, of, of details for each one to happen. That many things had to happen for the universe to be fine-tuned for life. Let me just give you one of those. The size and mass of our sun. If the mass of the sun were slightly bigger or smaller, A, if bigger, it would burn too quickly, not allowing planets to form at the beginning. If it was smaller, it would burn too slowly, affecting planets' ability to get heat. C, neither of those, or D, both. Try to make an easy one for us, yeah. Both, it's actually both. So it's precision. If it was bigger, we'd have a problem, and it was small. That's just the mass of the sun. But there's far more than that. There's far more about the sun that makes life possible. So to do that, I want to give a little sun demonstration. So I'm going to play the sun this morning with my, my, my happy demeanor. So this is the sun. You can see the planets over there. Uh, Kenny's going to play a little sun music for us as we go. All right. Mm. Mm-hmm. All right, so I'm going to fill up the sun. And what we're going to find out is it's not just the size of the sun. It's not just the mass of the sun. We're going to find that the sun gives off a certain amount of heat a certain volume of heat, a certain wave of heat, and that travels a certain distance. All of those precision things about the sun and the waves that move, the way it moves, the heat volume it takes, the dissipation of the heat, all those precision things make life possible. So I'm the sun here. There's the planets. We are precision located three planets in. So the sun is giving off waves all the time. They're going out into outer space. They are moving at certain rates, they are moving at certain volumes, and they are carrying with them heat. And they are moving, the sun is moving out into the universe. And as those waves are moving out into the universe, they are making their way toward the planets. And you can see them moving through space. You can see them affect the planets as they hit them. And it's not just, in this case, we're moving air that you can see, But actually, heat is moving with that. And the sun is so precise that if you moved it 1% closer, it would evaporate all the water on earth, and life couldn't exist. If you move 1% away, and the sun was still moving, it would be so far away with just 1% precision change, it would freeze all the water on the earth, and life would not be possible. And so when you think about the sun, besides its mass, Besides its volume, besides its heat, this gigantic nuclear reactor is precision-created so that we are able to live on the planet, live with life, because perhaps someone fine-tuned it so that there could be life. Can we thank Kenny? Thank you. I told them it was, I needed a sun song or a smoke song. So we, it's like smoking in the boys' room didn't sound right. Uh, smoke on the water didn't sound right. So that one seemed pretty good. So let's take a moment and let's peer into the stars for a second. And let's just see how much else is out there we don't know in precision. I want you to think for a moment about your fingertip. Okay, I want to take you into the universe. Let's, let's, let's roll the next video and let me show you. We're going to peer into what the universe looks like and think to yourself about your fingertip. It's unique. It's precise. It identifies you. And every one of the solar systems in the universe is like a series of fingerprints. Every one unique. And what you're going to find is what you can see behind your thumb will, will just mesmerize you. It will blow your mind and it will fill your heart, as I said earlier. If you take your thumb out to the evening sky and you see stars moving, you see shooting stars. They decide in 2019 to try another experiment. There's a little section in the middle of, of, the, of the atmosphere when you look up. It's got a little red triangle around it. It's black. Nothing can be seen from the human eye there. And they decide to peer in with the Hubble telescope and just peer at that dark nothingness the size of your thumb. And all of these solar systems showed up. All of these pieces we're right there in that one little space the size of your thumb in the night sky. all of those solar systems, all of those planets, and something that otherwise seemed completely dark to the human eye. But when we looked through a telescope, we saw that there are precision, spiral galaxies, stars, moons, suns. There is so much to see that we can't even see. And the more you peer into the size of your thumbprint in outer space, the more you see wonder and majesty and awe all around us, in a way that is just captivating. And so I want to give you a chance to do that this morning. We've been trying to do that already, but even one more time, let me tell you a story about what happened during COVID. My wife and I were planning on going a trip for an anniversary, and it got canceled because of COVID. So we planned a different trip that was allowed. And we got on a boat with two of our best friends, Danny and Nicole. And we went down to the Florida Keys. And we got on this catamaran. And we actually got for four days to learn how to sail. I learned that there's no ropes on a catamaran. They're all lines. And we learned all kinds of stuff. And we're learning how to sail for two days out and two days back. And as we're going out into the sky, we actually came to a place called um, the Dry Tortugas where Fort Jefferson is out there. This incredible fort didn't even know it's been a major part of american history but that wasn't what caught our attention the most we actually were sitting up there this little seat on the front of the catamaran that we sat on it was beth here and me and nicole and danny and and we've been friends for years danny's an architect he's an architectural uh he, he is one of the partners at his firm in in orlando But he lived in Atlanta when we did, and he was one of our best friends, and he volunteered in our children's ministry and student ministry. I was a student pastor. And we got to be great friends as we served together, as he volunteered together. And and by the way, if you've never volunteered around here, i got to tell you, some of my best friends, these are my best friends for 30 years, came from volunteering together, from just serving one another. Yeah, we helped a bunch of students, but man, the friendships we formed 30 years later. Well, the other thing that Danny and Nicole did is, is they actually were volunteer worship leaders, playing guitar and playing piano for us. And so Beth played the piano as well. And back in those days, um, there's a song we used to sing. And so it was kind of cool. So we're, we're, we're kind of made our way up. It's, it's getting dark at night. And we look up at the sky. and the amazing thing about the sky at night, especially when you're way out in the ocean. There's no light pollution, right? You look up in the sky and you see a level of light and stars that, man, you can't see from the city. And we're sitting out there and we're looking up at the stars and the little lights from the boat. You see fish kind of jumping around and we're laughing and telling old stories like you do as friends. And then all of a sudden we said, hey, you know what? Some of the songs we did 20 years ago, I haven't heard since then. Yeah. And so Beth and Nicole start talking. They said, you remember that song from Isaiah? And Danny's like, oh, I kind of remember that. And so he had his guitar out there. And so literally it's the four of us out in the middle of nowhere. And, and he starts kind of finger-picking along. And Danny and Nicole and Beth start kind of humming it. Have you not heard? Have you? And they're kind of playing it back and forth. And, and all of a sudden they start recreating the song we hadn't heard in 20 years. And it's a song that's word for word from Isaiah. And here's what, I won't sing it to you because then it won't sound good at all. But here, here's what it says. Why do you say, O oh, Jacob, my way is hidden from the Lord? When you look up into the skies, because he just told us to lift up, he just told us to, to nasse. it's the same passage. Why do you think my way is hidden from God, that nothing matters and God's not for me and there isn't a plan? It's just natural to kind of feel my way is hidden. It doesn't seem like I matter in the world. Then he goes on to say, Have you not known? Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the ends of the earth, he neither faints nor is weary and his understanding is unsearchable. And I tell you, to sit under that night sky to sing the actual words from Isaiah. And I love that last phrase of the song in the passage. His understanding is unsearchable. There is a type of hope. There is a type of forgiveness. There's a type of wisdom. There's a type of awe that you get sitting under the skies. Taking a moment to nese and to behold that speaks to your soul. And to have four old friends enjoying that moment. It wasn't just sailing. It wasn't just a vacation. It wasn't just friends. There was this transcendent moment that we were, we were doing exactly what I've talked about. We were, we were finding out there's a fine-tuned universe and there's a fine-tuner. And we were getting in tune with him through the stars, through music, and through our friendship and laughter together. And that's what I'd like you to experience. It may come in different forms for you, but for me, I've just seen these words that are true. The words that I found in Isaiah. The words that Jesus reiterates later to say, hey, it's not just some God somewhere that made this. I made this. And the God who's transcendent means he's outside of creation. Christianity comes as, but also he's imminent. I mean, he came near. The God of the stars, Jesus says, I am the God who made the stars which is really an outrageous claim. So he comes to earth and he says, I want you to know the God that's out there, the God that's big enough to blow your mind is the same God that's close enough, imminent is the theological words, to fill your heart. And that's what I want for you to think about as we finish this series and finish today. What would it look like to start learning? Learning how to commune with a world made for Communion. The word communion means to share in common. It seems like the universe and the stars, that feeling you get when you watch it. Some people say, well, I I feel like I'm a small part of something bigger or I feel something transcendent. However you say it, it's almost like God designed the world or someone designed the world, I think it's God, to want you to share something with it. That's why there's a writer, a Hebrew writer in the Old Testament writing in Psalms. And he captures this idea when he says, Man, when I consider the heavens. But notice he had to stop and consider it. To naysay it. To take it in. But when I consider the heavens. The work of your fingers. I consider the moon and the stars. Which you have ordained. When I just kind of take in the big picture. You know what the first thought comes to my mind? What is man? Who am I? That you're mindful of me. You've got galaxies going on. You've got universes you're spinning. You've got spiral galaxies. Who am I? It just is this humbling aspect. And who is the Son of Man that you visit Him? And the New Testament will talk about this idea, and He'll say, Who are you? Who is man? You are someone God loves so much. He left the, the penthouse of heaven, came to the outhouse of earth to die for you. You might say, well, I know God loves everybody. Yeah, but a God who loves everybody didn't cost him anything. The Bible says it cost God something, going from the penthouse to the outhouse to come and be betrayed and to be crucified. And he did that because you're mindful to him. The God of the universe, as crazy as this is, was thinking of you, how you didn't live up to your own standards, how you needed help, how we all need a bigger sense of purpose. So God came to us when we couldn't get to him. It's this idea he's capturing. And this isn't just kind of a metaphor, you know, learn to commune with God because the universe is made for communion. What if the universe was designed for God wanting to commune with you, to connect with you? This actually came true when the Apollo moon lander landed. Did you know that? Let me take you back to that moment in time. One last story. If you were there, you watched it on TV, you will remember that Apollo blast off was just incredible, right? That thing takes off into space. And as it's launching, the 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 tension could not be higher. Would we get to the moon before the Russians? Would we fulfill that promise that JFK made ten years earlier? And all of a sudden we watched. Some of us run the radio, we listened. We watched as that rocket took off with all that power and all that gusto into outer space. Neil Armstrong, Buzz Aldrin, just amazing. But the stakes were high. They got into outer space, they began orbiting, that moon lander began to make its way to the moon. But would it make it to the moon? Would it land safely? We wondered at that time if there was too much moon dust. Would it be lost at these giant pads on it because of moon dust? It landed, and as it landed, Neil Armstrong gets out, right? He begins to walk one small step. But then Buzz Aldrin gets on the broadcast. And he says something for all of us to hear.
2: I'd like to take this opportunity to ask every person listening in, whoever, wherever they may be, to pause for a moment and contemplate the events of the past few hours and to give thanks in his or her own way.
0: To contemplate what's happened. And then he went off the radio and he took a piece of bread... And he took some wine, and as a Presbyterian, as a pastor, as a follower of Jesus, he was an elder at his church, there on that moon landing, in those moments, he took communion. A reminder that the God of the transcendent universe had become imminent, and he broke the bread and said, God, thank you for dying for me and coming to rescue us. And he took the cup and said, as he read the Bible, he said, thank you for your forgiveness and your hope for us. Then he read out loud for all to hear Genesis 1-1 and Psalms 19. For in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. And this historic moment nationally and for the political sphere and everything else was actually a transcendent moment when he invited human beings to contemplate and connect with God and to commune with a God who designed a world for communion. And he did it literally through taking communion. So how about for you? Maybe you haven't slowed down. I've tried to really slow us down for the last 30 minutes to really contemplate, to naysay, to take an awe. Do you want something that you can tune in with? Do you want to know someone, a, a beginner, that you might want to begin to know? Have you ever longed to commune with something outside of time and space? Let me lead you into prayer and listen to the words of this last song as it really just says exactly what Isaiah said. How do we look to the stars and find out there's someone, not just something out there? Let's pray together. Maybe you want to pray. Maybe just slowing down this morning has been good for you. You want to take a deep deep breath of air real quick. Just, Just feel that air going in and out, the life in you. The same word for breath is the word for God's spirit. What is man that you are mindful of him? Maybe you say, God, I want to behold you. I want to take something with me today. God, I want to commune with you. Thank you for coming near, for dying for me, and inviting me into a bigger plan. I invite you into my heart and my soul. In Jesus' name.